0: Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Asian American Bar Association of New York, welcome to the Whole Lawyer Project, which highlights Asian American attorneys and leaders throughout the nation and the human stories behind their success. I am your host, Jane Zhang, and today we have Blossom Khan, Assistant General Counsel at MetLife here in New York City. Blossom has been with MetLife for the past 14 years, although she started her career in big law, first working as a litigation associate at Orrick, and then laterally to Aiken Gump where she served as litigation counsel. Blossom graduated from Yale College and the NYU School of Law. As if all that were not enough, Blossom is also a published novelist. She has co-authored two novels published by St. Martin's Press entitled China Dolls, which was published in 2007, and Young, Restless, and Broke, published in 2010. Blossom, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Jane, and thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: Thank you. Let's start up from the beginning. Tell us about your childhood. I grew up in the Bronx in New York
1: and I was uh an only child and I grew up in an area of the Bronx where really there were not many Asians. I think in my class I was pretty much the only Asian all the way up to like 7th grade. I was the only Asian uh kid in the class and uh, it was really interesting. I went to a uh, Catholic school. St. Nicholas of Tallentine. And then after that, I went to Bronx Science, a specialized mm-hmm. high school in New York. It's very concentrated in sciences. And then after that, uh, as you mentioned, I went to uh, Yale College.
0: I'm also the only kid and I grew up in Brooklyn and New Jersey. I'm curious, what did your parents do? My
1: mom had a, a clothing store that she owned and operated. And my dad had one business that had manufactured jewelry. He had a, another business that was a farm and it had a couple of other uh, real estate ventures. But yeah, you know, they both immigrated uh, to uh, America from Hong Kong and had me probably about, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years after they arrived in this country.
0: Wow. Yeah. What was your upbringing like?
1: Obviously, we lived in a neighborhood that there really weren't any Asians.
0: As I said, I
1: went mm-hmm. to school with pretty much all non-Asian classmates. At home, I, I think we spoke like a mix of English and Chinese. In some ways, you could say we were very traditional in that my parents did try to teach me Chinese. And it's much easier to learn a language when you are a kid growing up with that language than learning it later in life. At the same time, we also spoke English. So I would say it was pretty much a mix.
0: You mentioned earlier, you were the only Asian kid in school till about seventh grade or so, which is also very similar to my path. I went to also science um, high school. But up until that point, I never really went to school with Asian kids. And I didn't really know how yes. to embrace that Asian part of my Asian American identity. Did you similarly feel like you were other growing up? Or how did you embrace that part of you? Did you know you were different than the other kids when, before seventh grade?
1: Yeah, it wasn't that I felt like I was an outsider um, in any way. Growing up in school, there are times when it was very obvious that I was different. I think recently there has been a lot of focus on anti-Asian racism. And one of the interesting things is a lot of people have said things like, wow, I didn't know that Asians experienced uh, racism. A- and look, I gotta say every Asian person I know has experienced some um, racism in their life. And I definitely got called names like Ching Chong and things like that when I was growing mm-hmm. up. It's not that it's not to minimize it, but it was definitely a part of my childhood as it is, I think, for most uh, Asian kids growing up. Was I aware that I was different? Yes, absolutely. I don't know if that necessarily makes you an outsider. But I think it definitely is a formative part of growing up. Definitely.
0: So you went to Bronx Science, and then you went to Yale. At what point did you know you wanted to be an attorney?
1: When I was looking at postgraduate options, I started thinking about what I would do with my English major degree and uh, being a lawyer is a very common uh, path for a lot of English majors especially with the, the emphasis on research and writing that's what I decided that I was going to go to law school and at least uh, try it out as a lawyer for a few years obviously that stuck because I'm still a lawyer now but that's how I just made a decision
0: to become a lawyer Did you have family who were attorneys?
1: No one in my family was a lawyer. I also didn't know any lawyers, to be honest. None of my family friends were lawyers, none of my parents' friends were lawyers. So, really, it was completely different than anything that I had heard about or knew about on a first hand. Probably everything I knew about being a lawyer came from TV, which is, I think, uh, very common. And it's funny because once you're a lawyer, you realize that there are many kinds of lawyers that are never portrayed in the media. On TV, everyone is a litigator, which, by the way, is what I am. It informed a little bit about what I thought being a lawyer was like. So
0: did you go to NYU straight after college? I did.
1: I did. After I decided that I was going to go to law school, I went straight through. A lot of folks I know took time off, but I, I was eager to get out of school and be done with the academic side of my life and get into the real world, really. I really was looking forward to trying to practice and to see what that was like. And it was the right decision for me. I know a lot of folks feel like it's uh, better to take some time off and, and have that little bit of a gap year type experience. But for me, I was ready to be uh, done with school as soon as I could and and get out there in the real world and and be a real
0: lawyer. And what were the first years of big law life for you after graduation?
1: Yeah, I started out as an associate at Oric. I will say the first few years were very tough. I definitely had a real crash course in what big law was like. I think my first two years at the firm, I probably worked every day until midnight. I worked every weekend. I don't think I had a vacation in the first year and a half. And I was on a big trial that was just nonstop. Look, I was at that point, I was uh, fresh out of law school. I was like 24, 25 years old. It was fine, but that certainly takes a toll on you. And after a year and a half of doing a lot of discovery and document review and just working uh, really uh, crazy hours, I decided I really needed a change. And I lateraled over to Aiken, where I got a lot of of good experience in terms of being able to have more opportunities to do depositions and briefing and things like that. I definitely feel like I got exposure to the whole spectrum of what big law experience is like, starting from the, you're a junior associate shit and you're going to be working uh, crazy hours to some of the more advanced and sophisticated uh, litigation that work.
0: And what would you say was the most difficult and the most fun time for you throughout your time at Aiken and Well
1: I think difficult was what I've already alluded to. It was a very hard first two years, just a lot of work, a lot of just spending every waking hour at a law firm. And then feeling like I wasn't getting challenged enough and because I was doing just a lot of discovery and document review. And so then wanting to do something more, wanting to really kind of expand my skill set there. So that was, I think, the most difficult part. The best part was, honestly, the people. I think I forged lots of great relationships and friendships during those years. Some of the people who I met my very first day at a law firm, they're... They're some of my best friends today. We spent a lot of time working together in the office and you really get, you really bond through those, that kind of experience. And as I said, these people are some of my best friends still today. So those relationships I think are the best and most invaluable part of that
0: experience. Now you're a assistant GC at a huge corporation, MetLife. What is a typical day in your life? It's hard to say. When
1: I I interview people and I get asked this question, I'm always saying that it really just depends because you can start off each day with an idea about what your day is going to be like. You've got a bunch of uh, meetings, you've got some calls, you have to read some briefs, you have to do some other work, and then usually your plans get upended and things that are unexpected happen, and you spend most of the day doing that. I will say that being in-house, there are a lot of meetings. That was probably one of the biggest differences for me between working at a law firm and being in-house. At a law firm, you could probably spend all day writing a brief, researching something, reviewing documents. In-house is a little bit different creature. You generally have a very book calendar usually have meetings throughout the day with different groups. And a lot of that is the nature of the work. But being an in-house lawyer, you're very much a the hub in the wheel. You're a liaison between various business units, various parts of the company, and you're the one who's pulling it all together. By necessity, a, a lot of it involves a lot of meeting and interfacing of lots of different groups.
0: You were rather senior in big law before you made that jump. Can you tell us about the your thoughts behind that transition? Like, at what point did you know, one, that it was time for you to leave Big Law? And also, two, that a, a company like MetLife would be something that you were looking for?
1: Yeah. I- I think I always had an idea that I wanted to go in town. When I was in law school, I worked at the NYU general counsel's office. And I really enjoyed it because you got a chance to see a lot of different areas of the university and just a lot of different issues. I think that when you're at a law firm, you get exposed to a lot of different cases, but then you do the same thing. And certainly by the time I left, I felt I had done the same briefing, deposition the trial prep, a lot of the same kind of skill sets were being used to, to good effect, but oh, basically the same skill sets were being used over and over again. And while there are always more cases and different cases and interesting cases, I didn't feel like I was really adding to my repertoire anymore. And that's what being in-house really allows you to do. It really gives you the opportunity to stretch yourself. You have your basic skills as a lawyer. There's a lot that goes into learning about the business, learning about products, learning about what your company does, and then different areas within that, whether it's compliance, corporate, litigation, or some other areas. And I felt that I was at a point where I was really looking to expand my repertoire and add to that skill set. And also I think being in-house, you are the client. So you're in a different role. Many times when you're in a law firm, even if you're a partner, in some ways you're still like the worker bee in a way. And I think being the client gives you the opportunity to think big picture more, to really engage in strategy, look at a case and decide, is this a case we want to try? Or is it a case that like, we really should try to settle? What's the exposure to the company? What makes more sense cost-wise, reputation-wise? Those are the kinds of big picture decisions that I really want to be involved in rather than the more nuts and bolts type of work that I was
0: doing at the law firm. And why MetLife for you in particular? Were there, What were other companies or industries that you were looking into at the time?
1: I don't think I had any specific thought as To what company necessarily want to go into. I think it's different if you have a very specialized interest. Like some people may say, by the way, this was many years ago. This was pre-Facebook. These days, for instance, a lot of people want to work for like a company like Facebook or Google. And because these kinds of companies have like a certain cachet and it's like the sexy kind of companies that people want to work for these days. Back then, I didn't really have a niche I was looking for. I wasn't saying to myself, I want to work in retail or I want to work for a chemical company or a life insurance company. I think financial services was something that I was somewhat familiar with just from being a general commercial litigator. So it made sense. But I can't say that I went into this saying to myself, I want to work for a specific name company or even a specific type of company. I was really just looking um, to go in-house somewhere and financial
0: services seem to be a good applicable area for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you've been there since 2007. So what has been the biggest surprise for you in the last 14 years? A
1: little bit, a little of the surprise is that how fast time flies. I think that no one goes into a place thinking that they're going to be there for 14 years. But then it's probably a measure of the fact that you've had a good experience. If you're miserable, you're not going to last very long at a place. But it's been a good experience. And I've worked in a lot of different areas in the company and I think that helps me maintain my interest.
0: Can you talk about what areas you worked in in MetLife and how the job has changed?
1: Yeah. So when I first started, I worked a lot in our sales practices area. At that point had a uh, very large sales force of agents, and there's a lot of disputes that relate to sales practice issues that come up with that. So I started working in that area when I first started, and that helped give me a good sense of what the business was like. After that, I moved to commercial litigation and there I was focused a lot more on working on our securities class action lawsuits, shareholder derivative action suits, things like that. Some more of the big company type litigation. A very completely different area, very different area of the law and certainly much higher exposure. But it, it was it's been really interesting and certainly challenging and rewarding, having that kind of exposure. I've also done some work um, with our compliance folks. I've worked with our regulatory change management group and learned a lot about horizon scanning and how to stay abreast of the latest industry development statutory change, things like that. And recently I've been doing a lot of corporate governance work, working with our corporate secretary's office and learning about all the work and preparation that goes into board meetings and just dealing with general kind of corporate governance issues.
0: Mm -hmm. And what were the biggest challenges that you've had, whether in your specific role right now or any of the roles that you just described? And how did you overcome them? I
1: think that there's always challenges in every area. When I first started in the sales practice area, you know, I worked a lot with the business. And but there's always a challenge for in-house lawyers when working with business clients. There's a stereotype that business folks think the lawyers are just like the naysayers, right? The people who tell them no, and they can't do anything. And, and so to be a really effective lawyer to your business client, you really have to gain their trust. And I think a lot of that shows a willing to partner, a willingness to collaborate with them, understanding what their objectives are, and then trying to think creatively and outside the box, but always making sure that the company is in compliance with all laws and statutes. And I think once you build that kind of relationship, it really is conducive to building a good working relationship with the business, because then they can see that you really want to work with them. You're not just the police who are there to say no to them. So that was a big learning experience for me. I think that when you come from a law firm side, you're very black and white view of things. It's very much like, but this is how it's done. There's no other way. And working in the business challenges you to really think outside the box and think about, okay, what can we do here to achieve our objectives while being compliant with a legal hmm mm-hmm.
0: You're obviously a leader in your own right, worked extremely hard, incredibly smart. And you're in an industry that doesn't have a lot of leaders who look like you or me. How did you deal with the fact that the legal career was not the most friendly toward women or minorities, or did you not experience that for yourself?
1: I think we all experience that. And I, I think any lawyer who is Asian or a woman who says they've never felt any kind of issue on this front, I'm not sure if they're looking that closely. But the reality is that a lot of Asians go into companies at like the junior level. And then just like with women, as you go more senior up the rank, the numbers start to drop off. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that at the very top, very few senior executives at a company are Asian, and even fewer are Asian women. So that's definitely something that's out there. They call it, I think, the bamboo ceiling. And that goes a lot toward the perception that Asians are not leaders material, they are not assertive enough, they're good worker bees, they're smart, but they don't really have that leadership quality. And it is, look, it's a real perception. It's a real myth out there. It's a real challenge out there for every Asian lawyer who's trying to climb the corporate ladder. But I don't think you can let that define you. It's important that there are things that you may not be able to control just because they're societal. But then there are things that you can control. For instance, being able to advance in a company requires a lot of, you can't do it all on your own. It requires a lot of advocacy. And so what Asians were trying to navigate this kind of of a a situation, to do is really try to look for your allies, look for your sponsors, look for mentors, look for people who will advocate for you and help you climb that corporate ladder. I think that's one thing that Asians tend to overlook. There's a perception, and I see this with many of my friends and colleagues um, who are Asian, that, hey, if I do good work and I work really hard... That will speak for itself. And someone will automatically come over and lift me up and promote me and wave a magic wand and everything will be great. And that's just not true. So much, especially in a company, is premised upon relationships. And that's why it's so important for Asians to really network and form these relationships. It's yeah, not just enough to do your job job and do it well. You really have to form the kinds of relationships that will help you succeed in this kind of corporate environment. To answer your question, absolutely have I encountered situations where I felt that not looking like the people at the top of the company had a adverse uh, effect or was a challenge to me. But I also don't think you ca- should let that kind of uh, perception or stereotype define you as well. And a lot of that goes to, hey, just look outside your box and try to learn to form the relationships that will help you get to where you want to go.
0: And how did you specifically learn how to do that for yourself? How did you learn how to become that self-advocate and put yourself out there? It's not
1: something that is necessarily in everyone's comfort zone. And I don't think it was necessarily in my comfort zone as well. Certainly when I was at a law firm, I spent a lot of time working and I didn't really think that much about things like this. I think once I got in house, I started to see the value of that because I realized that relationships really are the biggest driver here. And if you are able to form good relationships, it really can make your work so much easier. And so you really have to be conscious. I think you just have to view it as another part of your job. Just as like your job might entail doing A, B, C, D, add an E. And the E is going to be for the relationship building that you're going to spend you know, part of your day doing every day. And do you
0: feel like companies like MetLife are now more aware of these implicit biases that you're talking about?
1: I definitely think that companies are becoming more conscious of it. Unconscious bias is still a very new term. A few years ago, I remember we did a program at MetLife on unconscious bias. And we brought in, in addition to the folks in the company, we brought in outside law firms. And, and a lot of people were like, oh, what is unconscious bias? And it was fascinating. People were like, oh, wow, I never even thought of this. I think now a lot more people are aware of what unconscious bias is. So that has become a little bit more understood in a corporate environment. But I think people are continuing to learn. More recently, there's been a lot more attention focused on this area because of all the anti-Asian attention that have been going on. Just this morning, we did a panel where we brought in uh, Frank Wu, who's president of Queens College, but also a CNN uh, commentator who came and talked about, you know, history of anti-Asian racism in this country. And a lot of folks were just stunned and were like, wow, we had no idea that all this stuff was going on with the, the Chinese, who are being brought over for the, to build the railroad, to the Japanese internment camps, to the killing of Vincent Chin. But these are things that were not taught as part of the curriculum in schools growing up. So they just didn't even know about it. So I think there's a lot more focus on these issues na- right now. And sadly, it was precipitated by some of these terrible attacks out there. But I think it's a good thing and i think it's good for you know people who may not be knowledgeable about this area to be educated about the history of anti-Asian racism, what is the model minority myth? What does that mean? And how does that play into microaggressions that occur on a daily basis in the workplace? It really starts with education because the reality is that this is nothing new, right? This is stuff that Mm. is rooted throughout history and people just don't realize it. I think it's the invisibility of this kind of racism which makes it more insidious because- I
0: agree, yeah.
1: don't know about it, they don't think it exists. And so they're they discount it and they're not gonna address
0: it. In terms of education though, so we spoke a lot about how to educate other people. I'm wondering if I could get your thoughts on how we advise and educate and empower Asian American attorneys, especially those who may not have quite the self-confidence or the self-assurance that they can step out of that box and not perpetuate stereotypes. Because we have complete agency and power to fight these stereotypes and to really forge a path. Do you have specific strategies or tactics that people can employ to become better self advocates and become more of a presence in the room and not be written off as the workhorse or the quiet, diligent person who won't make any noise or any other stereotype against Asians that we face day to day?
1: Look, those are really good questions. There's a lot in there. I think you're right. Education of non-Asian Americans is really huge in terms of helping create allies here. But I think Asians themselves have also have played a role in this, right? Asians are by nature and culturally not that much of an activist, I feel like. Certainly mm-hmm. compared to of the other minority groups, I think most Asians are that as activist minded, for the most part, up until now, I think that this is rooted a lot in a sort of Asian cultural belief that don't cause a lot of trouble, don't cause a scene, don't raise issues, just keep your head down and be quiet and do your work and don't attract a lot of attention. That is very much a part that was very much a part of my upbringing. And, And I think a lot of Asians grew up being told the same thing. Don't cause trouble. The problem with not causing trouble or not raising issues is that people think there isn't any. At the end of the day, it's up to us Asians ourselves to really speak up and draw attention to these issues. And it's great is that I do feel a lot more Asians these days are being very, you know, vocal and much more open. And part of the thing with these latest attacks also is trying to get Asians to come forward. know, there's a belief that there's a lot of underreporting of these attacks because people don't want to go to the police. They don't want to be on TV. They don't want to be in the news. But that's the only way we can really draw attention to these things. And the same thing to your question, what about Asian lawyers? I, I had a really good friend of mine who had not been promoted for many years. He was extremely smart, well-regarded, really hardworking. And he just didn't understand why he didn't get promoted. And he finally left the company. And when his boss asked why he left the company, he said, look, I've worked so hard. I've done really good work. Everyone thinks I'm great, but I've never been promoted. And his boss said, wow, I had no idea you even wanted to be promoted. Thought that Mm. you were intense doing Mm. what you're doing now, you might say, hey, it's the boss's fault for not recognizing this. And maybe that's a huge part too. But a part of it is also that my friend didn't speak up. He did not say, hey, I want to be promoted, or I want to get more responsibility, or I want this other job, or I want to advance. And it's really, that's on us, right? We have to be able to advocate for ourselves. And it's something other people, other groups, I think, do a better job of, quite frankly. And it's not easy. I think a lot of Asians feel they advocate for themselves. It comes across as bragging. Mm -hmm. And one of the virtues that Asians always pride themselves on, or certainly this is what I was told when I was a kid, is that we should be humble, right? Um, Right. We should have humility and not brag about ourselves. And those are good virtues, but I think you you shouldn't view it as bragging. I think it really is just being an advocate for yourself. Just if you are a lawyer, you're advocating for your client. That's how you should be advocating for yourself as well. And whether it is just expressing what your goals and objectives are very clearly and, and plainly to your managers or to whoever senior leadership is, let them know what you are looking for. Let them know what you want. Make a case for yourself. You can't just sit by passively and expect that things will just happen for you because that's just not Going to happen. So, I think young Asian lawyers need to take more ownership of their career. What they want is to advance, to be recognized, to be promoted. They've got to take ownership of their career and realize that it's not just about sitting there and hope someone waves a wand and hands you your dream job here. You really have to go and get that job yourself
0: when moments of self-doubt or questioning come to you how do you pull yourself out of it and keep yourself energized and motivated and self-assured and make sure that you can rise to the challenge how do you give yourself that pep talk
1: i'm not sure if it's a pep talk so to speak but one of the the best pieces of advice I ever got was from a, a senior female executive. And she said, look, when you're looking at a, at a job and you're thinking about like how I can do these things, but I can't do these things, don't take that as a reason why you don't think you can get the job or self-select out. And her view was, if I am taking on a job or a role and I know everything there is to know already about this, then it's not worth taking because mm-hmm. I already have that skill, like uh, yeah. a job worth taking is one where you're like, I can really learn and grow in this position. And I think that's one of the best pieces of advice I got. And it's hard. It's always very hard because I think we all have self-doubts and we all tend to think, oh, maybe I can't do this. I'm not sure I can do this. But it was like a real aha moment for me. When there are things that you're not quite sure of you can do, think of it not as an obstacle, but a real opportunity. This is a chance for you to take yourself to a new level, to add something else to your knowledge base that you don't already have. And so I think it's really just, I would say it's not so much a pep talk as I try to flip the script and view it not from the negative side, which is, hey, how is this hard or bad or or how would I fail? But more, okay, how do I do this? How do I learn this? How do I get to a point where I feel comfortable with it? What do I need to do? I think Mm -hmm. that's really my approach to it, to just try to flip the script and take all the negatives and see how I can make those all a positive.
0: I love that. I know we have a few minutes left and I want to spend a little bit of time pivoting and talking about your life outside of your work. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about your former career as a published writer. And as an aspiring novelist myself, I honestly have so much respect for you. Why don't you tell us a bit about your novels and what got you into writing? It looks like, from just based on the years, it looks like you published your first book right after you moved to MetLife. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: that's correct. Yeah, it's funny. It's been a a while. Ever since I was a kid, I had wanted to be a writer. And I think even when I decided I was going to become a lawyer, there was still part of me that just really wanted to write a book. And when I was working a law firm, it's ironic because it was probably the time in my life that I had the least amount of of free time, but it was often the time that I was most productive as a writer. Sometimes they say that misery breeds creativity. I think that I was working so hard when I was at a firm. I really just needed a creative outlet. I needed to do something that was different from my day job, so to speak. And it took some discipline, but I remember just I worked all day at a law firm and I would come home and I would always just try to carve out an hour each night to write something. And sometimes what I wrote wasn't that great. Sometimes it was uh, crap. But a lot of it is just getting yourself into that rhythm. And so every day I would write something. And that's That's when I really wrote a lot of that first book with my co-author. And that was right around the time that I left the law firm. And then I wrote another book shortly thereafter that was somewhat of a little bit of a sequel to that first book. But I, I think it was like a culmination of years of wanting to be a writer. And it was just a really nice creative outlet. I think that I just needed to be able to do something that was completely different from what I was doing as my day job. And for that, it was a great experience.
0: How did you get your ideas on your storylines? And did you know that while you were writing that you initially were aiming to get this published or how did that whole process play out for you?
1: Yeah, I think I always planned on getting it published. That's not to say that everything I've written has been with an eye toward publishing. I can tell you I've written many things that got you know discarded and ended up being thrown into the drawer, so to speak. I always had an eye towards getting my work published. I think in terms of ideas, I know for the first book, I had been wanting to write something about the Asian American female experience for many years. And, and that may, mainly came from the fact that I didn't see that many books out there that really talked to that experience at the time. Mm-hmm. I think Joy Luck Club was the only book really at that time that kind of spoke. My story was very different from the story of the women in the Joy Luck Club. And so I wanted to write something that was more true to not only my experience, but also my peers' experience, like other Asian American women I knew and what they were facing both personally and professionally. So that was really the genesis of that. It wasn't that I had a specific story necessarily in mind when I started, but I want to write about those experiences and get that out there into the world. Writing is not always a linear project. You don't always start from A and and go directly to Z. I think I had that idea in my mind. That's what I want to get out there into the world. And ultimately that's what my book was about.
0: And do you still write? And if not, what do you do now for your creative outlet?
1: I do Right. I have not. I've not written a book for many years, as you mentioned, and maybe that's a, a function of the fact that I have less of a need for a creative outlet, <laughs> which is maybe a good thing as well. I definitely felt like in the years that I was uh, working at a firm and, and writing the book, I didn't have much of a. Of a social life or personal life. So I I think it's, it's a good thing, perhaps also that I have more time for a personal and social life these days. But I do still write and I may get back into writing. I do write because I do feel like it's important to keep that kind of skill out there. Fortunately, writing doesn't really have an expiration date. There isn't like an age where you're like, suddenly too old to write something anymore. Who knows, there may be more to come.
0: And Final question, Blossom. What does living a whole life mean to you?
1: There are many ways you could answer this question. I will say that, and just keep some theme with some of the things that we've talked about today. I felt like I came late to the realization of what it was like to embrace myself as an Asian American, and, and what I mean by that is that I've always been aware of who I am, and that I was Asian, and that I was not quite the same as everyone else. But I don't think I really focused on that. All through my school time, and even my years at a law firm, I was not involved in Asian American issues. I really didn't know that much about the history of anti-Asian racism. It just wasn't that much of a focus. I was very focused on my career and my schoolwork. And I think that's probably true for a lot of young Asian Americans as well. In after I went in-house, I started becoming very involved in learning more about diversity and inclusion. And I think that was the point where I really started to see like, how important it was to embrace the part of me that was Asian. I embraced the American part of me, but I don't think I embraced the Asian part of me as much in my younger years. It's so important to really embrace that side of you. And I think it's something that everyone I hope will put aside some time and really focus on because it really is a huge part of who you are. And I don't think you can truly be a whole person until you fully embrace
0: that. Mm. Thank you, Blossom. Thank you so much for your time with us today.
1: Thank you, Jane. I appreciate you having me on your podcast.